wonderful to be back with you again this week. Thank you for coming back and joining us again. We are in lesson three of 16 in our seminar series, The Healing of America. And this is a wonderful course and hopefully you're already enjoying it and getting a lot from it. Have you done your homework? Have you been keeping up with the blanks in the back of the book? Have you gotten your books yet? Because I will tell you that these books are absolute gems and you will love them and you will love teaching them to your children and your grandchildren and reviewing them um, in your study. They are so wonderful and encouraging and informative and um, we are just enjoying them so much. So we hope that you will grab them if you haven't already. Uh, we also wanted to give a shout out tonight to Hannah and Z. Hannah is in Oregon and Z is in Colorado. They are part of the Moms for America team. Uh, I'm the Virginia State Liaison, Tyler Ota, and uh, we at Moms for America believe in promoting liberty and raising the next generation of patriots, as well as empowering moms. And so we are so happy to have you here tonight and looking forward to another great lesson tonight. We are going to talk tonight about the war that set us free, the American Revolution. And um, I, I, um, I, I don't know why it is, but every time that I get started on this presentation, the, the screen um, uh, does a trick to me. So I apologize for that, guys. Um, uh, so last week, we were talking about the wonderful Samuel Adams and how he was really so influential in getting us to the point of an American revolution. And we talked about the genius of Thomas Jefferson and his declaration of independence and how all of these things coalesced and came together at the right time because God was raising them up for their purpose and, and the purpose of setting us free and going through this American Revolution um, time. So um, tonight we're going to jump right into how the war uh, started and we're going to talk a lot about George Washington. George Washington is a big time favorite of mine. As you can see, he's with us here this evening, making an appearance and presiding over our activities. We um, feel a special air of, of uh, grandeur when we're in his presence here. <laughs> but um, we are going to talk about George Washington, and then we will wrap up talking about the um, the economy and how America was really the first to try that free market economy. So let's go ahead again and we'll start off with that first slide. And you know, if you can just skip over the title page for me. Um, so once the founding fathers had made that decision to declare independence, they knew that they had to formulate a structure of government that would bring everybody together and make the United States, all these colonies, a solid national unit. And so on June 12, 1776, almost a month after the Declaration of Independence was announced, they put together this committee and they decide to draft the Articles of Confederation, which you may have, this may be ringing a bell for you. So little did the founders realize that it would be 11 years, 11 more years uh, before they would know how to put together a constitution that would be sound and would be for a free and prosperous people. So in 1776, Thomas Jefferson says, 
uh, we had never been permitted to exercise self-government and when forced to assume it, we were novices in its science. So he's acknowledging like, this is a, this is a brand new thing. This is a brand new undertaking that's really never been done before. And he's kind of saying like, we don't know if we're really up to this task or not. Um, but they were, and of all the constitutionalists, you know, for him to be around and, and during that time and, and and helping to put all this together, these men were were just the right group of people to make all of this happen. So the first draft of Articles of Confederation was prepared under, and there it is in the in the slide, was prepared under the direction of John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. So John Dickinson was a little slow to the whole independence thing. He was originally actually opposed to it. And it was only after King George III had rejected all of their petitions for reconciliation that he kind of was on uh, seeing that it was inevitable that they'd have to separate from, from Britain. But his original draft provided for a central government that was almost as strong as the British crown. And this was eight days after they declared independence that Congress receives this and they are just shocked and, and rightfully so at what they've been given. So now they go into 16 months of prolonged debate and that finally results in a new draft, which does get adopted on November 15th, 1777. And that draft actually went the other way too far. So it actually left the central government weak and too weak. And so the, the states were vigorously independent, but the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation almost caused us to lose the, the Revolutionary War because they really couldn't enforce, uh, they couldn't enforce states paying for the war and so there was it had no teeth really for for um you know enforcement of things that they were putting out so it had no executive it had no federal judicial system no power to tax and no power to enforce any of its decrees so the national government simply had to depend upon the cooperation of the states and they didn't always cooperate um, as you can imagine. So Congress had not yet found that balanced center of the political spectrum. So here you can see on the spectrum that, you know, anarchy is on the right. That's more like no government at all and no laws and anarchy and, uh, you know, kind of libertarians lean more this way. Um, and then on the other side would be monarchies and all the isms like communism, socialism, Marxism, et cetera, would be on the ruler's law side of things. But we wanted to be more in the people's law, right in the center, but they were a little bit too far the other way. And probably, as you can imagine, having come from that ruler's law, they wanted to get far away from it. So they probably kind of overcorrected initially on that and then um, realized over time that they were going to have to, to do something about it. But during the Revolutionary War, this was what was in place as their 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 loose government. So in spite of its weaknesses, the Articles of Confederation contained many valuable principles. In fact, more than 50 major provisions were later included in the Constitution of 1787. And so the ratification of the Articles of Confederation was delayed until smaller states like Maryland um, in, induced the larger states to surrender to Congress their claims to Western lands. And the articles finally went into full force on March 1st, 1781, although for all real intents and purposes, they had been functioning under this for more than four years already. So having declared independence from Britain, the Americans really 
had to sustain their independence by taking up arms. And so this eight year revolutionary war, it turns out to be a very frustrating war. It kicks off on April 19th, 1775, and it goes all the way till September 3rd, 1783, officially, although fighting stopped in, in, in 1781, but on the books, it's till 1783. And the Americans were caught without a well-structured system of that strong government to run the war. They were facing the most powerful empire on earth. And they had th that empire, the British empire had the largest army and the most powerful navy in the world. And we had no army and no navy whatsoever. Um, the central government had no money with which to finance the war, so we were broke, and there were strong loyalist or Tory elements throughout the country who were really opposed to independence and actually fought on the side of the British. So the breakdown of that is um, for, for sympathies, a third of the country was really in that Tory side, that loyalist side to the crown, a third was... Uh, apathetic and just really didn't care one way or the other. And a third of America felt strongly that they should be independent. And the breakdown of that in terms of people doing something about their, their sentiments was more like 94% of people were apathetic, meaning that they didn't take up arms to fight and they didn't do anything for the cause. 3% went to fight for the British and 3% went to fight for America. And so when we look at our country right now, if we take 3% of our 300 and roughly 30 million people, it's about 9 million people. And so with those kind of numbers, do we think that we have 9 million people that would stand up for America and would fight for her and fight for our principles and our freedoms and our values as they are? I think we do. And so that's very encouraging very encouraging numbers if we apply it to our day um, in terms of, you know, what it was back then when we only had about 3 million people in our country. So I always think that's a very interesting little stat and very encouraging number to share. Um, so I hope that you are also encouraged by it as well. Um, France, who remember Joan of Arc, we studied in the first lesson, they did provide us with supplies, which was really helpful and significant, but the impact of the troops and their naval support was very disappointing. Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette did eventually come to our aid in 1780, which was kind of the tail end of that war. But um, remember little Joan of Arc, without her, we would have had no French aid. Um, so we, we know that God orchestrated all of that together so that France would be able to help us in our in our last hour in our time of need. We talked last week about how the first half of 1776 was really a rough year for the founders. None of that was going to compare to what they were about to face. So during the summer of 1776, the British Army and Navy also mobilized, commanding command commanded by General William Howe and his brother, Admiral Lord Richard Howe. And so on August 27th, 1776, at the Battle of Long Island, we have no Navy. And so Washington could do little more than just put up a token resistance at that battle. And General Howe thinks that we're going to surrender. He's got us basically surrounded. And he expects these British ships to cut off our only retreat option at that time, which was to go across the river to Manhattan. 
um, the East River, and they never arrived. Those ships never arrived because there was no wind, you know, because these were sailing ships, so there was no wind to sail. So Washington takes 9,000 of his men across the East River so that they're doing all this, you know, in the cover of night. And he lights the, you know, decoy fires to make the, make the British think that they've kind of camped for for the night. And then this deep fog settles into their area and it's so dense that you can't even really see in front of you. And so by morning, if there had not been this fog, the British would have absolutely seen these remaining men that were still stuck on the Brooklyn side. But because of this dense fog that God brought at just the right time, George Washington's army gets across the river. All of them make it across. And when the fog lifts, the British are alarmed to see that there is no competing army there anymore. And so they do end up going to capture New York. They go on to capture New York on September 15th, and they essentially burn New York to the ground by September 21st. However, Washington and his troops were able to retreat and they were able to survive, to live, to fight another day. And there would not have been a revolution if that, if that one instance didn't go the way that it did. So this was really, I mean, I would consider it a miracle because we're talking, this was like August and this deep fog comes. And so I don't usually associate deep fogs or dense fogs with you know, late summer, but this is what happened. And so there were many heroes of the American Revolution, but for sheer grit and fortitude, none exceeded George Washington. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about him now. And I'm going to give you some kind of personal um, stories of him and things to really make him hopefully come alive to you because we always hear, you know, the, the same stories and, and the stories that are kind of more maybe military based or whatever, but he was actually a really fun guy and a really cool guy. And so I really would love to just share with you some of these, some of these really neat stories. So his father died when he was really young. His father had been married before. So he was the oldest of Mary Ball's children who was, so who was uh, George Washington's uh, father's second wife. Um, and he, so he had these two older brothers and his mom raised him to tell the truth. And he was known to be of good character from a young age. She would read to him from Sir Matthew Hale's book, Contemplations, Moral and Divine. And we're going to put that in the chat for you because you can actually still get this book. It was written in the 1600s, but I would love to teach it to my children. And hopefully I can raise some George Washington's, right? So, and of course, she would have read the Bible as well as other, you know, wholesome literature to him but they were not very well off. Um, so she was really kind of in charge of his education and, um, you know, did a lot of this reading and teaching to him from home. And his friends kind of thought that she was very stern, but she had a son who respected her and who, you know, obeyed her and um, told the truth. And so I think based on those things alone, she was doing a good job of being a mother, whatever it was that she was doing. Um, there's actually one story when he was riding one of her new horses of a, a colt. Um, he, he tries to break this colt for her, you know, break is when the horse is, you know, still kind of wild and crazy and young and hasn't learned to take a rider yet. And so he goes out at, uh, before breakfast with his friends and he's trying to break this horse for her and the horse just goes absolutely nuts and is trying to buck him and takes off, you know, full break speed and 
the horse eventually like just kills himself because he just runs himself to death. He, I think he burst a blood vessel or something like that. So anyway, um, they're like, oh my gosh, what are you going to tell your mom? Because this was like her favorite horse. And so they're like, what are you going to do? And they're like expecting him to make up some story or try to get out of it in some way. And so they're all at breakfast and uh, he, he tells her the whole story and the exact truth. And he said, mom, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, but you know, this is what happened to your horse. And she says, while I regret the loss of my favorite, I rejoice in my son who always speaks the truth. And so he also obeyed her when he was 15. He wanted to go enlist in the British army and thank goodness that he listened to his mother and he knew the Bible says children obey your parents. And he was still not totally of adult age where he could go, you know, and do, he could still do it if he really had wanted to. But he was still knew that he was under her authority and she begged and pleaded him not to go. And he said, okay, mom, I won't. And if that had not happened, we probably wouldn't have our dear George Washington and all these wonderful stories. And, and it wouldn't have been, you know, at least through him that all this happened. And I often wonder if, you know, it wasn't for his obedience that God used him and, and rose him up um, in our time of need. Again, these men were all coming off of the Great Awakening, and so they were influenced by very, um, very key spiritual leaders, you know, as they were coming, coming of age. So his home is actually in Mount Vernon, which is here in Northern Virginia. It's like about 45 minutes from me, and uh, it's down in Alexandria. He had five farms in total, and I think we have uh, a picture of his his Martha Washington. Martha Washington was an incredible woman. She was married to Daniel Park Custis and had four children with him. And two of those children, unfortunately, passed away. And so did Daniel Park Custis. And so she was left a widow with two young children at 27 or 26 or 27. And she uh, remarries George Washington when her two surviving children are ages four and two. And they never had their own children. Um, but he raised them really as his own children, um, raised them as they were his own children and, and loved them as a, as a good father. And um, so I think uh, we should probably go back a few slides there, um, Hannah. And so if you go to Mount Vernon, you can see, okay, here we are. What a uh, couple more. So there's Mount Vernon and Martha, and this is a, a famous painting of Mount Vernon, which you probably recognize. And then if you can go forward one, Anna. So these are some photos of Mount Vernon on maybe two separate occasions that I went, because you see one is cloudy and one is sunny, but they have beautiful gardens and the house is stunning. It's right on the Potomac River. Um, it's, it's quite lovely. And this is like one of the dining rooms here. And um, if you go forward one slide, Hannah, for me, um, this is one of the bedrooms. It has very nicely appointed bed bedrooms, about five bedrooms, I think, on the upstairs. This is me and my kiddos. This was last summer, and I just love this picture because I feel like we just like, I don't know, I, I just love the picture. It's really a cute one. And then there's also, uh, if you go into the foyer of the main house, there's the key of the steel present, which was a gift from the Marquis de Lafayette to Washington. It's still in the home today. And one of the tour guides actually told us when we were there, and I don't know if this is true or not, so don't hold me to it. But he said that when Macron came with Trump, that he saw the, the key and asked 
if he could have it, <laughs> which I was like, I hope you're kidding about that, but I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that he ended up getting a replica at like the dinner, like Trump and him both got a, a replica at the dinner. But I, if that's true, that's really hilarious that he would have the audacity to ask for that back. But um, I got a I got a real kick out of this, the tour guide telling me that story. So I thought I'd share it with you, too. Um, you can go on to the next slide there, um, Hannah. So one of the reasons why I love Washington so much is that I actually have family connection to him. And so for me, it's kind of I feel like he's, you know, Grandpa George or something. You know, I feel like very connected to him because um, if you look at this very poorly done <laughs> family tree, um, you can see William Fitzhugh. So my maiden name is Fitzhugh. And the Fitzhugh is one of the first families of Virginia that came over and Randolphs and Custises and Lees and Washingtons and Carters were all, um, you know, in Virginia at the same time during, you know, during kind of the settling of, of Virginia. And so William Fitzhugh's mother was Lucy Carter and her, his grandfather was Robert King Carter, who was like one of the the biggest landowners in Virginia at the time. And so he marries Anne Randolph, whose cousin was Thomas Jefferson. And then their child, Mary Lee Fitzhugh, actually marries George and Martha's, well, it's George's adopted son, Jackie, married Eleanor Calvert over on the right, you'll see. And then they had a son named Washi. And so George and Martha actually ended up raising Washi and uh, Nellie. So Jackie and Eleanor had six children total, but they ended up raising two of their six children. And Jackie died young in the Revolutionary War. And Patsy, their, their, the daughter that they were raising, um, also sadly passed away. She had a seizures and she had a seizure one day at a young age and, and passed away. So their two boy and girl passed and then they raised their two grandchildren and I've often thought that that must be so difficult for them because it's almost like they're you know reliving their the same scenario um but you know they they love their children and all the letters that were written they were very family oriented people and they they cared a lot about what happened to them and and some of the letters talk about George Washington urging Washi to wait to get married because he was getting married at such a young age to Mary Lee Fitzhugh. So then their child is one of their children is Mary Randolph Custis and she marries Robert E. Lee. So, you know, I'm related to this Fitzhugh. He would be like a great, great, great uncle somewhere up the line. But I just love that I can kind of claim a little piece of this Washington history as my own. And I just thought it was so cool that I would share it with you. If you have some really neat family connection, put it in the Q&A and we'll chat about it at the end because so many people, like as you get to learn your history, you find out really cool things about who you were connected to, related to, some fun story that you might have about meeting, you know, some famous person or or you know maybe somebody in your family doing something really cool so let us know put it in the q a and we'll chat about it at the end but i just wanted to share that with you as well so if you go to mount vernon also i wanted to mention to you uh before before we move off of this topic that um if you go at christmas time you can see aladdin the camel and 
Aladdin the camel is this camel that they bring in just at Christmas time because George Washington used to bring in exotic animals, very often a camel, at Christmas time for the visitors to see because back in those days there were no zoos, there was no, you know, camels just living in America and so people had never seen creatures like this before and so that would be part of the entertainment where he was hosting you know, guests and family and things. So I, I just love that they still do that. It's a tradition there and you can go and see the camel. They keep them there until like, I think, almost, I think till epiphany, they keep them there, which is January 6th. So you have um, plenty of time during the holidays to go see him. I think he probably comes in close to Thanksgiving or maybe just after and they decorate it beautifully. It's a wonderful time to go. It's also great to go in the summer because then you can see all the, the plants and the foliage and all of the, you know, different, happenings in the outdoor part of the of the you know land it's very interesting and make sure that you go to the crypt there's the crypt where george washington is buried is there and it's very um touching they they make you remain silent as you visit it and there's lots of um, monuments and stones and things there for you to read as you um, pay your respects but it's really a cool thing so you don't want to miss that and I think a lot of people go there and they don't know where it is or they don't want to look for it but I think it is really worth the trip to go to that that spot so let's um go on to the war so um I'll I'll start with okay this was the slide about the fog settling in and having to get across the river and so the next portion of the war that I want to share with you that's really a, just an incredible story is at the end of 1776 things are not looking great for America as I just shared they lost this battle in New York and so at the end of the year now the Redcoats have defeated us and many people including the general are still thinking that we're going to give up any day Washington loads up 2400 soldiers 18 cannons onto flat ferry boats and crosses the icy Delaware River from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. And just imagine the difficulty of having to load these heavy pieces of, of equipment and trying to do it quietly and quickly and with no shoes on. I mean, they always talk about this trail of blood that followed Washington's army because these poor guys didn't even have shoes on their feet, but they were so committed to their cause that it, they, they were unfazed. And so they say that this storm that was coming in that night was a mix of rain and hail and snow. And, and their, their enlistments were coming up at the end of that year. And so on December 31st, so Washington knows that like, this is his do or die moment. Like he knows he has to get them a win so that he can persuade these troops to stay and reenlist and continue this fight. And so after they crossed the river, and of course, that would have taken a long time to shuttle back and forth all of these troops. And they have to march now another nine miles and encounter the Hessian troops. And so they come upon these Hessian troops in the morning because, it, you know, it's taken them all night to cross and march. And now they're coming up to them on in the morning. And these Hessians were German mercenaries. So the British had paid them to fight against us and they wore these funny pointy hats called grenadiers and blue coats and they were very you know very proper looking soldiers anyway these guys say that they were probably hung over from christmas celebration nobody really you know not everybody says that there's not like not 
you know, proof or something, but you hear it from time to time that they were probably hung over from celebrating Christmas because this was the night of Christmas that they were crossing that, that Delaware river. And, um, you know, to, they just thought that no one would dare to march in that storm that they were experiencing. So after only about two hours of fighting, they surrender and we won. And you can still go there today. There's a visitor center and they do the Christmas day reenactment of the crossing. So I've never done that before, but that would be so much fun to witness. And definitely I would put it on your bucket list if it's, if you haven't done it already. If you have been there, tell us all about it in the Q&A and we can chat about it more at the end. Um, but that's definitely on my list of things to do is to to go to Pennsylvania and and see the the visitor center and and maybe even a christmas day reenactment the other major component of the war that everyone shares a lot is the um the time at valley forge so with twelve thousand men this makeshift winter quarters would become the seventh largest metropolis in the country at the time and at Valley Forge, they took winter quarters. They had basically nothing because remember, we were under those Articles of Confederation. And so Congress was not getting the funds that they needed from the states to provide the food and supplies that we needed. And so Washington's men were getting sick. And actually, a fourth of his army would die during that time at Valley Forge that winter. And the living conditions were very poor. They were sleeping about 12 men to these little wooden huts. And of course, if one of them gets sick, then of course, all of them would get sick. Um, cold temperatures and uh, sometimes even going into single digits. And, you know, there's camp fever, exposure, starvation, other diseases, stories of men who were half naked, without shoes or standing in their hats many of them would actually desert, unfortunately. And so they were having to do, Washington ordered increased roll calls to, to check and see, make sure everybody was staying. Um, and that land at Valley Forge was actually owned by a Quaker who was named Isaac Potts. And, you know, Quakers are usually pacifists and he was as well. And he said that he went into the woods one day and he saw George Washington praying and he said he had never seen, never heard prayer like that from the lips of a man he went home and he told his wife what he had seen and he said we never thought a man could be a soldier and a christian but if there is one in the world it is washington and they were both just astonished and they said we thought it was the cause of god and that america could prevail and at which time he then decided to change positions and support america because he had previously been supporting britain because he was you know, a, a loyalist, and he was also a pacifist, so there was no way he was going to be um, supporting America. But he he literally changed his mind just from seeing Washington pray and realizing, ooh, I might be on the wrong side of this. So I love that story. And of course, you're familiar with the painting. There's several paintings um, of this story. So during that time at Valley Forge, you know, Martha Washington, she would come during the winters to um, bring comfort to George and the soldiers. And she would bring things that she had made from Mount Vernon with her, like preserves and probably blankets and things like that. And she would knit socks and pray for the soldiers and just try to make things more comfortable and, and happy, even though times were so tough. And she would never complain and she would wear a plain brown dress. And she was so opposite of what people expected when they heard that she was coming to town. They expected her to 
throw balls and, you know, have, have parties and things. And she was out there on the field working and, and was part of the cause and was supporting George in this, in this way. And just, um, I'm sure that he felt so supported and loved by her. And I felt like that was such a good reminder for us mamas that we would also support our, our husbands and our men that we would lift them up and encourage them, especially in these times that we're going through. And, um, you know, just, I think she probably really encouraged him, um, you know, to prevail, to, to continue on. And so this was a time of really sharpening these soldiers and, and it was a great time of trial, but it was also a time of strengthening because as people are dying and leaving, the ones that are staying are becoming stronger. And then Prussian volunteer Count Frederick von Steuben writes his own drills and he instills discipline and he teaches the un these untrained Americans to, you know, reload their guns more quickly, to march properly. And he really turns them from, you know, these just kind of vagabond, scraggly guys that were farmers and shopkeepers, and he turns them into actual soldiers. And so this was a really important time for um, during the war. And uh, we are just so, so thankful that it all worked the way that it did. And that, you know, Von Steuben really helped our troops to become battle ready. There's another story about the revolution that I wanted to share with you about George Washington. He was one day riding by a group of soldiers and they didn't know him. And they were busily engaged in trying to raise this beam to the top of this military works. And it was a very difficult task. And you could often hear the corporal was saying, you know, now you have it already, pull, you know, let's go do this. And Washington quietly, you know, approaches the corporal and he says, you know, why aren't you helping your these men? And the corporal says, sir, very angrily, of course, sir, do you not realize that I am a corporal? And Washington politely raised his hat and says, I did not realize it. Beg your pardon, Mr. Corporal. And then dismounting from his horse, Washington himself falls to work and helps the men till the beam until it's raised. And before leaving, he turns to the corporal and he's like wiping the perspiration from his face. And he says, if you ever need assistance like this again, call upon Washington, your commander in chief, and I will come. And the confused corporal turns red and then white as he realizes that this was Washington himself to whom he had been so pompous. And we hope that he learned a lesson of true greatness from that encounter. So now we go on to Yorktown. I think we have a slide for that as well. Now we're in September 28th of 1781 and Washington and the French attacked Cornwallis at Yorktown. They pounded him for a week with cannons. And then for three days, they dug new ditches and moved up. So they moved the cannons even closer um, to, to continue on with their siege. And Washington himself lights the fuse for the first cannon in that siege of Yorktown. And this battle goes on for nearly a month before Cornwallis surrenders on October 19th. But claiming illness, he sends his brigadier general to surrender his sword. And Washington, Washington's aide, you know, was originally, you know, they were trying to get him to accept it. And Washington, Washington's aide points to Washington himself. And then Washington points to General Brigadier 
or General Benjamin, I'm sorry, Benjamin Lincoln, who rode forward and accepted the sword. And it would have been very poor form for Washington to accept a sword from anyone other than the commanding general. So he, he wasn't going to do that. And little General Benjamin Lincoln actually had to surrender his sword in a previous battle. So Washington was trying to elevate this man who had been previously had to give up his, um, his own sword. So I wanted to share with you a couple of books um, real quick. This one is called Martha Washington. I actually picked this up the last time I was at Mount Vernon. And when you go to these, you know, historic homes and historic, historic places, there's usually a gift shop and they have great books in them. Now you do have to be careful nowadays and kind of look through them first and peruse and make sure what you're picking up before you actually buy it. But I, I love this little one and my girls love reading this one about all about Martha Washington and how wonderful she was. Um, there's also, I picked up this one called The Revolutionary War by Mort Kunstler, and he actually did all the artwork and wrote the book, so I love that. He's very talented. The pictures in here are amazing. And then there's another book, too. You know, this is Black History Month, and really we should have, you know, just history and include all of Americans in that all the time, but um, this is called A Spy Called James. And it's about James Lafayette, who was actually James Armistead until he was a double, uh, he was doing double spying for America and Britain, pretending to be a spy for Britain and was actually working for us. And so he uh, ends up giving us crucial information about Yorktown at the last minute and basically saves us. So he's really an unsung hero about, of the Revolutionary War as well, but when the war was over, um, uh, the Marquis de Lafayette actually wrote a letter on his behalf asking that he would be freed. And we did indeed uh, give him his freedom. Um, following that, I believe it, it took about two years for that to come to fruition, but he ended up taking Lafayette's last name as a, as a tribute to him and what he had done for him. So I think this is a really cool story as well. And I just wanted to share that one with you. Um, so now we'll move on to, uh, kind of the, the wrapping up of the war and, uh, you know, kind of what happened following that. Um, so King George III, he, he tries to brace the British for this continuation of the war, you know, but after Yorktown, no one really had any heart for it in England anymore. And I mean, it had been dragging on for quite a while. And it was costing them money and we were we were ferocious and we were not going to give up and we had a leader who wasn't going to give up. And so the British just, you know, <laughs> they just didn't have the heart for it anymore. So while the peace was being negotiated, the Americans recovered the entire South. However, the British completely destroyed the French fleet of Admiral de Grassi. By January 1783, the King of England had finally acknowledged the independence of the United States and news of a preliminary treaty reached America some time later. And Washington had the treaty ready to or read to the army on April 19, 1783. And that was the eighth anniversary of um, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So it was almost exactly eight years. And at last the war was over and the formal treaty was finally signed on September 3rd, 17, uh, 1783. 
And so Washington waits until the last regiment of the British had packed up and departed before he entered the city of New York on December 2nd. And he bade his officers farewell on December 4th and reported to Congress after that in Annapolis. But at that um, final farewell dinner, which was actually held at Francis Tavern in New York. And I did have a slide for that, but I think I deleted it by accident. So it's probably not there, Hannah, but um, if you just Google it, it's Francis Tavern. So it's Francis, but it has a U in the middle, F-R-A-U-N-C-E-S Tavern in New York. And he actually was on the second floor. You can still eat there. So if you ever go to New York, you can, you know, check it out and go check out the museum on the second floor. And he says to them, um, oh, let's see, it's on this slide. With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. And he said, I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former, former ones have been glorious and honorable. And so I think, you know, it was probably a very touching time, touching moment for him to be, you know, saying his farewells to these men that he had served with and been through so much with this, this bloody war that just dragged on and on. And they were probably never going to see each other again. And so they were saying their respects to each other. And he shook each one's hand before he walked down to um, get on a, to Annapolis, Maryland, and they, they walked with him, you know, to the, to the pier and, and sent him off. And, um, you know, it's, it's very accurate for us to say that under all, you know, forms of, of information, financial, political, administrative, militarily, logistically, America definitely should have lost the war. And so the fact that we won I think really speaks to the fact that God was with us because we totally defied the the expectations of of what was and it was largely in part to George Washington. Have you ever heard about the vision of George Washington? He comes out of his room and he tells Sherman Anthony this soldier that he had a vision and he tells him that there was an angel who came to him and told him that he saw three periods of our American history. One was the revolution, which we would win. One was the civil war, which we would prevail through. And then another of a modern modern time, probably our modern times conflict. And he was told that our nation would remain until the return of Christ. And so he, he told Sherman Anthony, you cannot tell anyone this dream of my, this vision of mine until I am dead. And he never told a soul until 1859 when he was a very old man. And the vision is actually recorded in the Library of Congress. And some, some people might not believe it or might feel like it's just kind of one of those, you know, legendary things. But you, you almost have to think it was true because George Washington was able to persevere despite all those obstacles that were stacked against him and every difficult thing that they faced and you know, maybe he did have some form of higher knowledge, you know, that encouraged him along the way to keep going. Um, but even if he didn't, we know that he was, he was a praying man and that he was praying earnestly for his country and for the freedom that he was able to attain for us. So if you just Google George Washington's Prophecy of America, it's a really interesting story and it'll, it'll come up. There's like YouTube videos about it. 
Um, so I hope that that will encourage you as, as we continue to promote liberty in America right now. So after the war, um, in June of 1783, just as the Revolutionary War was, you know, coming to a close and Thomas Jefferson, he feels compelled now to make this decision to write a fourth and final draft for a sound government system in Virginia. And so he takes it with him to France because he's going to be a minister of France to try to, you know, make uh, make uh, good relations between our new country and France. And having having discovered what John Adams later called the divine science or the natural law of sound government, the founders wondered if there were natural laws which would produce a dynamic and prosperous economy with a high standard of living. So while Jefferson is there, he's sending things over to his friend, John Adams. He's sending him his books. He's sending him papers. He's writing him letters. And they're really, he's really trying to help him, you know, from afar to kind of start putting together, you know, our, our, our form of government. And so in 1776, and I believe there's a slide for this one, just as the first free people in modern times are coming into existence in the United States of America, there's an economist in Scotland. Oh, these are the quotes from George Washington that I didn't get to share with you. These are beautiful. I'm sorry, let's do these real quick. So he said, do not let anyone claim to be a true American if they ever attempt to remove religion from politics. Anyone who does this cannot be called American. I love that one. Another, my mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her. The time is near at hand, which will determine whether Americans are to be free men. The fate of unknown millions will depend under God on the courage and conduct of this army. Let us rely on the goodness of our cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. And that last one, I mean, I feel like maybe I could just even print that out and stick it somewhere where I see it every day because I honestly feel like that's the point that we're at right now in our country as well. Um, so, but but I love that he knows that the victory is with God and we, we can know that too and have have encouragement from that. So back to Wealth of Nations, I think that might be the next slide. Oh, some other books for Washington. These are great books. I, I have all three of these and um, they're fantastic. If you want to know more about Washington, really get into like the detailed stories and things that you would you never really hear about. So I really encourage you to check those out. Um, is the Wealth of Nations the next slide, I hope? Yeah, there we go. So along comes this Scottish economist, and he's a friend of Benjamin Franklin, which is so cool. And he publishes this book, The Wealth of Nations. And you probably you probably recognize that name. If you've read it or you have it, let us know and tell us what you think of it. Um, but in his book, it's I don't think it's exactly light reading. But in his book, Adam Smith says that wealth is not gold or silver, but the essentials of life, the food, the clothes, houses, transportation, communication, school, good roads, factories, and well-cultivated farms. In other words, a, a life, right? A, a life that is kind of, you know, well, well-made. And so it's not so much about just the money, but like the quality of life. And so Adam Smith says that if you can increase that standard of living and prosperity, 
Goods and services should be abundant and cheap. And how is that achieved? Well, it's achieved by this formula. And I think I have a slide for this too. He said, specialized production. So instead of everyone trying to make their own clothes and their own tools and their own, you know, vehicles or whatever it is, everybody's going to specialize in their own field. And then you only have to just be good at one thing and you can free up so much time. Buying and selling in a free market. So a free market, meaning that there's not really regulation and it's kind of you're voting with your dollar. So if somebody's doing a good job with a product, then they will be rewarded because people will want that product. And it's based on that natural law of supply and demand where people vote with their dollars on what they don't want or don't want. And natural law marketing is completely democratic. Everyone improves his position by making a profit and whatever he's doing. So a profit is defined by him as doing whatever is necessary to make an exchange worthwhile. So when someone sells something, the buyer is getting something too. So both parties are happy and that exchange is worthwhile. The secret to the, to the successful operation of a free market is competition. And that can sometimes be painful, but the results are good because you get a greater quantity, more production, more profit. You get improved quality to attract more customers and to stay in business, and then lower prices to beat the competition, and a greater variety of goods and services to satisfy individual customer demands. The greatest threat to free market economy is government interference, and this happens when the government is involved in fixing prices, fixing wages, or controlling production, controlling distribution, subsidizing production, or regulating things too much. The real role of government is simply to serve as a referee to, pre to prevent illegal force like mafia tactics or, or you know, um, coercion and things like that, fraud, phony stocks and bonds, or people, you know, taking your money and, and frittering it away while they say you've invested, monopoly in them where you're eliminating competition completely, debauchery, so pornography, obscenity, drugs, prostitution, and other forms of vice. And it isn't it ironic that right now in our country, I feel like that debauchery piece, the government is actually almost encouraging it because we're trying to decriminalize these things. So it's really interesting how they went from actually serving as a referee to prevent those things, to help businesses and to help the free market. And now they are actually sort of completely reversing that that position. Um, Adam Smith's tr tremendously successful formula for prosperity can be summarized in the following economic principles, the freedom to try, the freedom to buy, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. And so if you have that freedom to try to make a business, to, to buy what you want to buy, to sell what you want to sell, and the freedom to fail. So in other words, no, no being bailed out by the government but if you fail, you fail and you can lose it all, but you can also, also gain so much, right? So the risk and reward, and that's the beauty of entrepreneurialism. You know, my dad actually owned a business for about 30 years or so. And so as a child, I watched him, you know, be his own boss. And I would go with him on errands and meetings and all sorts of fun things. And I was just determined that I was never going to you know, sit behind a desk for the rest of my life and, and be like everybody else. Because I thought what he did was so cool, because he was able to, you know, he worked really hard, but he was able to, to, you know, to, 
to run the business and to make these decisions. And, and it was just so cool to watch him do that. But through all that process of seeing him, you know, doing business and, and, and being a business owner, I also saw how the government on more than one occasion intervened into his business and actually hindered his business on multiple occasions. Um, things that required permits, things that they, they came to him with, with new ordinances, lighting ordinances. It was a, it was a driving range, a golf driving range. And so they would make these ordinances about lights had to be off at a certain time. Um, and then they tried to redo the road in front of his business and they sent people that wanted to turn in half a mile up and they had to do a U-turn and come back around. And that went on for, I think, more than a year and hurt our business tremendously. So I have seen firsthand what happens when the government starts, you know, doing things to not support small businesses. And it, it's not uh, it's not a pretty thing at all. Um, Thomas Jefferson later rejoiced in the tremendous success of the natural laws that had led to the development of a prosperous free enterprise economy in America. And these were the laws that Adam Smith had endeavored to enunciate in the wealth of nations. And so Jefferson declares, we were, we were marked with special satisfaction, those prosperous circumstances, which under the smiles of providence result from the skill industry and order for our citizens managing their own affairs in their own way and for their use unembarrassed by too many regulations unoppressed by fiscal fiscal exact exactations and so you can see there you know exactly what i was just saying and he goes on to say agriculture manufacturers commerce and navigation the four pillars of our prosperity are the most thriving when left most free to individual enterprise and we see now that the government is super involved in all of those things. And especially one thing that I wanted to bring up is trains. You know, here in Virginia, many of our trains are no longer running. And I'm sure that's probably the way it is across most of the country now, at least, uh, you know, from, from what I would gather based on what I know, which is that they are over-regulating trains now. And uh, so there was a train that ran up and down, you know, the East Coast on you know, very various areas on the East Coast. And um, they've all closed down, even the ones that were running in, in the last couple of years, because there was so many rules about speeds and things. And so what they did was they basically made it impossible for anyone to make money if they were in railroads. And think about how much traffic we would alleviate if we could still have railroads. And they actually tore up this whole track um, down in the Eastern shore area where we go every summer. And it was so wonderful and nostalgic to see these old train tracks and every time, you know, from time to time, an old train would come, you know, rumbling through and they still have the old, you know, train stations are up and down that, that whole road there. And just, I think two summers ago, we saw the machines tearing up all the tracks and putting them in big piles. And it's just so sad because trains were such a wonderful part of our thriving economy for so long. And I still think that they would have, they could have been, they could still be if we would just have a government that was not so uh, rigid and, and uh, I, I think unreasonable sometimes about these, these transportation items, especially, but Anyway, it was a monumental task to glean from history the natural laws of freedom, security, and prosperity. And it was an even greater task to put these principles into practical operation. And so we will now turn, um, you know, in the next lesson, we'll turn to that 
effort of the founders that they were trying to put this proper structure and that American success formula all together into our constitution. And uh, I wanted to share with you too, we have the um, 5,000 year leap uh, book and in here principles 15 and 19 are about, um, they're about the economy and a free market. And so if you have this book, you can feel free to check that out. And there's 28 principles in this book uh, of liberty. And so the 15th and the 19th really apply to this lesson. And then we also have Frederick Bastiat, who was who wrote the law in 1850. And I happen to like this version a little bit better. This is the Tuttle Twins version. And if you don't have Tuttle Twins yet, um, you need to get it. You need to get it for you and your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors and everyone that you know. These are great books. And the reason why they're so great, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this before, but every book in the Tuttle, Tuttle Twins series is based on a, a real book, you know, an adult book. So this one's based on Frederick Bastiat's The Law, and it tells you about it at the end of the story so your kids can learn some, you know, history and know what it, the story is based on. But this is the easy way to learn, you know, the principles of the book without reading, you know, these huge volumes. So I love it because it's very simple and, you know, kids will get it, they'll enjoy it, they're entertaining, and they have, you know, real, real life examples of what what the book is is trying to convey they also have the miraculous pencil which talks about how uh, specialized production how each part of the pencil is created by someone else and then it all comes together for this specialized production um, the creature from jekyll island we're actually going to get into this later in a in a different lesson so we'll talk more about jekyll island in the future but this is about really those those uh uh what do you call them they're the bankers and the the planners, the master planners, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, how the master planners really created the Federal Reserve. And then we've got food truck fiasco. This is about entrepreneurialism and about government intervention. Um, and then the road to serfdom. So there was a book called Road to Serfdom, which was S-E-R-F-D-O-M. And this one's about serfdom, the town. Uh, so this is about uh, the government officials making decisions that harm others and the unintended consequences that happen. This one's about Atlas and what happens when hardworking people quit. And so kind of a very interesting story about a circus performer. And this one's about entrepreneurialism too. This one's about the, the Tuttle twins, Ethan and Emily, they decide to go into show business. And so it kind of walks you through, this is one of my favorite books. This walks you through being an entrepreneur and starting a business. And they talk about, you know, all the things that they have to think about to make a profit. And so it's a really good book for your kids to kind of get that entrepreneurial sense in them young. And then there's this one too called The Messed Up Market. So as you can see, a lot of these Tuttle twin books address the economic issues, but others address you know just equally as good issues but they're wonderful books and so I highly recommend those as well and so I think that's going to wrap it up for us tonight um...